The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Scorebox. Here are your headlines. The U.S. government declares it no longer considers Hong Kong autonomous from China in a decision that could end the territory's special trade status and further raises tensions with China. The Dow crosses 25,000 points for the first time since March as back-to-work stocks boost U.S. averages. But Chinese markets fall as the House passes a bill sanctioning Beijing officials. Could this be Europe's big moment? EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announces a 750 billion euro package of grants and loans to be made available to member states to help fight the pandemic. We take that leap forward. We pave a strong path for our people and for the next generation. And for me, the choice is simple. I want us to take a new, bold step together. The board of Lufthansa rejects the conditions of its 9 billion euro bailout deal, saying it cannot agree to calls from Brussels to give up key runway slots in Germany. President Trump vows to sign an executive order against social media platforms, claiming he will strongly regulate or shut them down after Twitter adds a fact-check advisory to his tweets. The U.S. State Department has officially declared Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China. Secretary Mike Pompeo said that, quote, while the United States once hoped that free and prosperous Hong Kong would provide a model for authoritarian China, it is now clear that China is modeling Hong Kong after itself. The move comes after Beijing and proposed imposing a national security law on the territory and could threaten the loss of its special trade status with the U.S. Tensions over the law are set to come to a head today. China's top legislator will vote on the bill at 9 o'clock CET as the National People's Congress concludes. Debate in Hong Kong's Legislative Council chamber is currently adjourned after objects were thrown in a tense standoff between pro and anti-establishment camps. Well, Jeff, uh, it's quite extraordinary given the scenes we have been witnessing in Hong Kong again this week. Protests on the ground, the escalation where this has gone all the way to the White House. Yet markets don't seem concerned at all. If you look at the trade that we've seen on Wall Street, uh, stocks have been bouncing on the reopening of economies. Uh, So we will pick up on that point on how markets are more broadly uh, faring. But let's just get down to the detail of what this declaration by Pompeo actually means for Hong Kong. Emily. Uh, Thanks a lot, Karen. Uh, We did get a declaration and a statement from uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, doing this to Congress uh, via a tweet. He says Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China. Uh, He went on to make a statement saying that no reasonable person can assert today that Hong Kong maintains a high degree of autonomy from China given facts on the ground. This decision gives me no pleasure, but sound policymaking requires a recognition of reality. Uh, So the U.S. is going to be deciding to what extent sanctions are 
policies will be leveled at Hong Kong. President Trump has already indicated that he will be making some sort of announcement uh, by the end of this week, U.S. time. Analysts have been quick to point out that some 1,200 U.S. companies are operating in Hong Kong, and any such sanctions or policies would uh, provide for tougher operating conditions for all of these companies as well. Uh, so they may have to be, of course, a treading carefully. Uh, looking at reaction in the markets, the Hang Seng Index is just rejoining the trading day for the afternoon session, and we are continuing to sink here. We are the underperformer in the Asian region. Uh, the market down more than 2.2 percent, or 500 points, 22,798. Eight shares also traded lower, down 1.4 percent. Uh, we had a lot of protests yesterday, uh, sprinkled, sprinkled across uh, numerous districts as uh, Hong Kong people are opposed to the two laws uh, that are being uh, put forth. Of course, the first being the national security law uh, that is expected to be rubber stamped by the NPC this afternoon in about two hours time from now in Beijing. And then is the national anthem bill, which is having its second reading in the legislative council. Uh, the council has been adjourned today because of a kerfuffle between the pro-establishment and the pro-democracy camps. Uh, but uh, you can see some of the protest pictures from yesterday. It went on late into the night. 360 people arrested, uh, thousands who took to the streets yesterday playing all sorts of games, cat and mouse, uh, MTR doors being blocked, a slow drive in the tunnel, uh, those arrested for dangerous driving. These pictures just earlier this morning, uh, some of the uh, lawmakers were basically carried out of the legislative council chambers as uh, there was uh, the, basically the two opposition camps coming to a head, the establishment as well as the pan-democrats. So Hong Kong is closely watching what's happening over in Beijing as as the NPC is, is set to pass or rubber stamp the national security law for Hong Kong. Back to you. Thank you very much for that, Emily. Well, let's get into the detail as uh, China's condensed National People's Congress does conclude later on today with those votes on the legislation, including the controversial Hong Kong law at 9 a.m. CET. The press conference with Premier Li Keqiang at 10 a.m. CET. Sam, just run us through the latest that we're expecting from the NPC, given we've also got now heightened concerns around the U.S.-China trade relationship. Absolutely. Good morning to you, Karen. Well, this controversial new Hong Kong national security law has really been the big focus of this year's annual meeting of parliament. And it's one of nine items on the agenda expected to be rubber stamped this afternoon. Uh, but with a room packed full of delegates chosen for their loyalty to the party, uh, really, there is little chance that these things don't get through. So we are expecting that closing ceremony to kick off in Beijing in the next hour or so, in the next few hours rather, and officials will also be voting uh, on the work report, a draft civil code, improvement of the legal system and an economic and social development plan. Of course, we know that political stability has certainly been the big message that Chinese officials have been pushing at this year's annual meeting of parliament to try to keep the economy on safe footing. But away from these uh, issues, of course, all the attention has been on this Hong Kong law. Now, Chinese state media have said that this is to help safeguard national security and Hong Kong's long-term stability. And once this is approved today, uh, a detailed law will then be drafted. But of course, critics say that this really does chip away at the freedoms that Hong Kong was promised when it was handed back to China in 1997 under the one country two systems framework. So we're all waiting to see officials and markets to see what Trump um, will do and what his plan is um, to uh, 
um, uh, to, to against China in response to this. Um, now, Beijing has vowed uh, strong countermeasures as well, um, and we could see things, you know, as far as um, China maybe making life a little bit more difficult for, for U.S. companies operating in China. Uh, it could affect visas. Um, but China analysts that I've spoken to have been telling me that really there is no quick fix solution to this. We are in for a long term battle. And that is because we are dealing with a cocktail of tensions right now between the US and China, who are at odds over things like trade, Taiwan, the South China Sea, Uyghurs, uh, and now this controversial Hong Kong law. Um, and amid all these tensions, we have seen um, this weakening of China's yuan this week. Now, this really does suggest that despite signs of economic recovery uh, in China, which really should strengthen its currency, all these issues uh, regarding uh, the US around um, trade and Hong Kong um, are perhaps changing things. And this um, could really be seen as sending a message to the US. Karen? Sam, thank you. The US House of Representatives has passed a bill calling for sanctions against China over its treatment of Uyghur Muslims. The legislation was approved 413 to 1 after clearing the Senate earlier this month and now goes to the White House. But President Trump has not yet said whether he will sign it into law. The US leader has 180 days to put together a list of Chinese officials considered responsible for abuses. Well, I'm going to come back to my conversation. I was having with Jeff at the start. Jeff, it's just extraordinary when you consider how far we have seen the US markets climb and not too far off the record highs, about 13 when it comes to the likes of the Dow, where it feels like investors are treating this issue of Hong Kong as purely a Hong Kong-China problem. They don't see that there could be ramifications. And of course, the greatest threat that is if you get sanctions on China, if those are enacted by President Trump, that the Chinese hit back and then eventually you get an unraveling of that very hard-fought phase one trade deal. Yeah, there's a lot in that, Karen. So, so let's just unpick that slowly. Um, the issue of the markets going up at this point, it seems to me, just talks to the success that central banks and governments have had in addressing the impact of COVID-19 on business activity. The, the the willingness of investors to go back into the market, I think, is an indication that they feel that the Fed and other central banks have ultimately built solid underpinnings for some kind of rally here from those March lows. Whether that turns out to be the case, we'll have to wait and see, given that the fund manager surveys that we continue to read continue to describe this as a bear market rally. So whether we can get through uh, the rest of uh, the quarter uh, without some kind of pullback, well, we will have to wait and watch. Just coming back to the Hong Kong story, I think the markets have managed to detach themselves from just about everything, even as some of the macroeconomists will tell you the underlying economic damage that we're still seeing from COVID-19 happening as these lockdown restrictions are eased. So back to Hong Kong for a moment here. I think the problem is just the overall level of uncertainty that we have around outcomes at this point. Until we actually see some sanctions imposed on either Beijing, Chinese officials or Hong Kong, there's not more than a lot of noise for the markets to actually latch onto at this stage. And just to be slightly controversial for a moment, I guess, even as we look at what's going on in Hong Kong here, there will be a lot of people in the business community who will be quietly saying, well, 
if there is a new national security law imposed on Hong Kong, if that brings to an end 18 months of rioting and business disruption for me, then I will just accept that as one of the consequences of doing business in the territory. Because at this point, I think there are a lot of them that would rather see some stability brought to the territory than worry necessarily at this stage about what it means in terms of rights or freedoms or the gentle erosion of the rule of law in Hong Kong. And I'm sad to say that's just the way a lot of businesses will actually think about this story. They'll worry about the consequences of the ongoing protests rather than specifically the erosion of rights and values in the territory. Well, that's it. If the news tightens up from the White House, then you've got to say those businesses will be facing incredible uncertainty. And I just want to point out that there are there's support across the aisle. We're not just talking about President Trump, the Republicans here. We had a response yesterday from the campaign for Joe Biden saying that he would sanction China at this point because of this bill that uh, Biden, if he were president, would fully enforce the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. That would mean sanctions on officials, financial institutions, companies and individuals. So I think it does tell a message about where the United States is going in terms of its anti-China sentiment, and that is a risk for markets. Uh, I saw one report this morning saying the markets are calm at this stage. I would replace that with complacent, because I do feel as though investors are only trading this reopening theme that we're seeing, and it's been expressed in the banks, uh, retail stocks on Wall Street, the catch-up that's taken place more broadly in stocks away from just technology, Jeff. And I think uh, investors at this point are just sitting back and they are ignoring clear warning signs that are coming through from protesters, from the messaging from the White House? Um, let's, de- let's deal with the facts for a moment. Uh, the Chinese uh, internet company Tencent uh, managed in the last 48 hours to raise $6 billion, uh, $6 billion in debt. That doesn't, to me, suggest that there's any reluctance at this point to help fund Chinese uh, multinationals. That $6 billion is a drop in the ocean compared to the $712 billion that we've seen raised through uh, debt issuance in the Asia-Pacific region in 2020. And that is a record run rate for capital raising for the purposes of tidying them through, no doubt, the impact of COVID-19 and as a way of uh, perhaps addressing uh, what may come next. That, to my mind, suggests that not only are equity markets not taking a great deal of interest in some of the uh, political toing and froing, but the debt markets and the credit markets propped up by these central banks are also not particularly interested in this uh, at this point in the uh, potential outcome of the disagreement between uh, China and the United States over trade, the Uyghurs, or indeed over Hong Kong. So the You may call it complacent, Karen, at this stage, but based on, I think, the previous track record of the relations between these two huge powers, I think that many investors are deciding this will blow over eventually and there won't be very serious economic consequences. Whether that is uh, the correct uh, call, well, it remains to be seen at this stage.
Yes, I'll pick up on that term eventually. I wonder how much time we have this time round uh, because the trade war was very long and uh, enduring. And a lot of investors uh, saw that uncertainty expressed in lower economic growth figures. I'm sure no one wants to see that this time round as we try to recover from the pandemic. Now, I want to take you to some of the market numbers that we witnessed in trade yesterday, a bounce across the major boards. And as I was mentioning, it was really concentrated around other stocks away from just the technology names that have enjoyed the rally. It was the uh, Dow and uh, the S&P showing a lot of catch up as the Breath came back into the mix, 2.2% bounce. So you could see 25,500 on the boards for the Dow. We climbed above that key handle. Also on the S&P, above 3,000 points for the first time in about 12 weeks. We've now had a jump of about 36% in the S&P 500 since we saw the depths of that selling in the height of the pandemic amid lockdowns. In terms of some of the gainers, take a look at the big U.S. retail plays, uh, the reopening uh, that you are now seeing across the United States, a gradual reopening, benefiting a lot of these stocks. Uh, Macy's in particular, the double-digit spike, uh, close to 20% uh, for some of these numbers. Gap, 16.8% on Nordstrom. So very strong play indeed as uh, investors think that uh, normality is and customers get back into stores. That's a good thing. Uh, these stocks might have been oversold, so investors now picking them up. But uh, certainly our recovery players, investors uh, tried to reach beyond the usual suspects on the market that they're buying in the fangs. Well, the U.S. banks, a couple of days of gains as well. And you can see reinforced in session yet again yesterday. And when, when you break down what are the big moving stocks for the major averages, typically it has been stocks like Apple, Microsoft, even Facebook, for instance. But in the last couple of sessions, it has been banks, Goldman Sachs, one of the big drivers for the likes of the Dow, that bounce of 6.9%. Uh, you saw a strong move on the likes of City as well, 8.5%. So the numbers are incredibly uh, strong. Goldman Sachs, speaking of which, the President and Chief Operating Officer John Waldron said some traders and staff in its US and London offices will start returning to work in the coming weeks. Speaking at an investor conference, Waldron said the return to work plan was already in motion at many of the company's global locations. He also indicated that the pandemic would have a long-term effect on Goldman's work patterns. There's no question in my mind that we will continue to run a more distributed model of our workforce over time. When we had our investor day in late January, we talked about our strategic location strategy which was to put more people into offices and what we're calling strategic locations, places like Bangalore, Salt Lake City, Dallas, Warsaw, Singapore. And I think we'll continue and potentially move even faster towards a more distributed model. Some of our people may in fact work from home longer or maybe even more on a semi-permanent basis. For more on the U.S. financial sector, be sure to tune in later on today as our colleagues stateside speak to Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. The coronavirus death toll in the United States has topped 100,000 as the country continues to suffer the highest number of overall deaths in the world so far. According to a Reuters tally, more Americans have now died from the pandemic than during the wars in Korea, Vietnam and Iraq combined. U.S. President Donald Trump did not comment on the dire milestone. However, his presidential rival, Joe Biden, tweeted his sympathies, adding that over one-third of deaths could have been prevented if the administration had responded to the virus just one week earlier. Coming up on the show, it's been called a turning point for Europe. We'll be speaking to European Commission Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis about the EU's 750 billion euro recovery plan. Don't miss that exclusive interview at 8.15 CET. And for more on tensions between the US and China relationship over Hong Kong and whether it will hit market sentiment, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. The European Commission has unveiled its 750 billion euro recovery plan as the bloc looks to paper over divisions and kickstart struggling economies. The proposal would borrow the funds on the market, issuing grants and loans to the countries most affected by the crisis. German Chancellor Angela Merkel welcomed the proposal, insisting EU leaders must now focus on getting the plan across the finish line. I believe that Germany and France have provided a good component to this proposal with their input. It's clear that these will still be difficult negotiations. They won't be finalized at the next EU Council. The goal must be that we find enough time in the fall for national parliaments and for the European Parliament to debate the matter in such a way that everything can come into force on January 1 of 2021. Sylvia has closely been monitoring that EU budget and the recovery fund. Not exactly the catchiest title, is it? Uh, the next generation EU. But uh, hopefully it does the trick. It's bigger than the Franco-German initiative that was proposed. So let's see how this will fly across the, the EU because it needs the consensus from the 27 member states. And so if we look at the proposal from the Commission yesterday, there are two components to it, Karen. The first one being the overall EU budget, which is a normal plan that the EU has for its spending over a period of seven years. And so starting in 21 until 2027, the Commission proposed spending 1.1 trillion euros. And that's roughly what the EU has been spending over the last seven years. And that, in a way, should please the frugal force, so the countries that are uh, a little bit more reticent about increasing their spending towards the EU because they didn't want the overall size of the EU budget to increase. But then the EU Commission also suggested to have an additional 750 billion euros that it would raise in the public markets because... Uh, sorry, because of the ongoing pandemic. And so in that context, when you look at the number, 500 billion euros should be given as grants, according to the European Commission, and 250 should be given as loans. And even in there, you can see that the Commission is trying to please everyone. So with the 500 billion euros as grants, that follows the proposal that Germany and France made a couple of days ago. And then the 250 billion euros in loans should please the frugal force because they've always been asking for loans rather than grants. And yesterday we actually heard from Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, saying why there needs to be this component of grants. Let's take a look. These grants are a joint investment in our future. They have nothing to do with the past debts of the member states. They will be channeled through the European budget and this will limit each country's contribution according to a fixed formula. The grants will be clear investments in our European priorities, strengthening our digital single market, European Green Deal and resilience. 
So the European Commission also suggested that there should be new taxes across the EU to deal with some of the additional costs, including, um, of course, by having to raise more money in the public markets. And so in that context, the Commission suggested that a carbon tax as well as a digital tax should be implemented. But we know that those are very controversial subjects across the EU. A couple of years ago, the Commission tried to implement an EU-wide digital tax, as you know, Karen, and that didn't go through because it needed the consensus from the 27 member states. So it's difficult to see how the EU could agree on, on these taxes so, uh, in a short period of time. So that money that could eventually come from those additional revenues might not happen for some time as well and so in that context the member states might have to contribute to the EU um, overall a bit more in the coming year. So there's a lot of detail to go through over the coming weeks and months. The EU heads of state, the 27, will be talking about this proposal on the 18th of June, but we might not have a, a final agreement before the end of the year. Sylvia, the comment you just made that if the money doesn't come through in these carbon taxes and tech taxes, then it's the member states on the hook. And if you look at the amount of money, the tech tax expected to earn about 1.3 billion euros a year if it goes ahead. The tax on large business, about 10 billion euros a year. The carbon tax, between 5 and 14 billion. But all of these measures are incredibly difficult. It suggests there's a money tree just sitting there if you shake it, that these funds will just fall into the coffers for Europe. But as you just pointed out, it's very hard to get these uh, measures through. And the tech tax has been extraordinary. That's gone nowhere. It's been down to individual countries to push ahead. But what about the carbon tax? That's been no easier, has it? No, it hasn't. And it actually has raised in the past some controversy in the U.S. as well. Some U.S. officials have uh, made comments in the past that they're against that idea because it would also uh, be implemented in products that are coming from outside the EU to be sold across the single market. But as you mentioned, Karen, there are a lot of detail to go through. And in that context, the European Commission has suggested that uh, there should be more spending, there should be more money coming from the member states, Still this year, they want about one, uh, 11 um, billion euros, I should say, this year to come from the member states to essentially bridge the any sort of financing costs that they might have overall until the end of the year. Because as I mentioned before, this proposal in particular for the next EU budget and recovery fund will not come in before January. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.